The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Father, and to the Son, and Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Set forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord, amen. May the divine assistance remain always with us. And may the souls of the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. O Mary, seat of wisdom, pray, pray for us. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hello, and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Yourself? Doing well, Father. Thanks for being here. Sure. Father, let's get into some emails. Uh, this first one is from a viewer all the way in Ireland. And uh, he says that on one of our recent videos, you quoted Luther as saying, on the cross, Jesus became sin. He literally became sin. And uh, you seem to disagree with this, Father. And so he, this viewer asks, how do you understand, in light of this, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. How do you understand that, Father? Well, I understand it, I believe, as the Church understands it, actually. And uh, if one looks up that verse, one sees something rather interesting. Uh, actually, if you look at the Greek, which I did, actually, <laughs> The sense of the verb is, was made sin. You can, you can translate that as became, but it also has a meaning, was made sin. But if you look at this verse, this is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Well, actually, I'll begin the verse before because uh, uh, it leads into it. This is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. For Christ, therefore, we are ambassadors, God, as it were, exhorting by us. For Christ, we beseech you, be reconciled to God. Him who knew no sin, he hath made sin for us, that we might be made the justice of God in him. So when it says he hath made, he's referring back to God, the word God of the previous previous verse, <clears throat> and it says that God made him sin who knew no sin. But if you continue reading the verse, you see that we might be made the justice of God in him. Okay. So if one looks at that verse in its entirety, one sees the sense of the expression, he was made sin, God made him sin. Because the, what follows the consequent of that is that so that we might be made the justice of God in him. Now, you and I 
St. Paul and those to whom he was writing, the Corinthians, have not been made justice, literally, in the literal sense of the word, right? I mean, justice is a, a virtue. So we cannot be transformed into justice. We have our human nature, our fallen human nature, which can be, of course, justified from sin and glorified by grace, right? And sanctified by grace and glorified in heaven. But we don't literally become justice, okay? So the verse, uh, the understanding of what goes before it uh, can be gathered from how that verse ends, that we might be made the justice of God in him. You might say in the same sense, St. Paul means that Jesus Christ, our Lord, was made sin by God so that we might become justice. But it does not mean that Christ literally became sin because sin is evil. <clears throat> sin is intrinsically evil, right? Sin is the absence of God as an evil, right? And so that is not, <clears> that <throat> Jesus Christ did not become sin in the literal sense of the word. But Luther taught the exact opposite of that, that our Lord actually Luther, unfortunately, become. was teaching literally that Christ was made an abomination to God. Yes. Okay. He was willing to become an abomination to God so that God would actually look at him and hate him. Wow. You know, if you read the writings of Luther, he's rather clear on this subject. Wow. Sad to say. All right. Uh, well, then, Father, we have another question concerning the interpretation of the, uh, the a verse of Scripture. And this one is in, uh, pertains to Second Thessalonians chapter 2 concerning the, uh, the Restrainer and the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. This viewer says that in the 1870s, Cardinal Manning uh, wrote concerning his interpretation of that verse. And uh, it says here that uh, he interpreted the uh, what restrains the coming of the Antichrist and until he is taken out of the way to be the office of the papacy and the pope. So, Father, are we on safe grounds and going along with this understanding of the what restrains and the he? Well, let me read that. It's actually a, sh a short chapter, so I think I could probably read the whole thing without being too prolix. Go for it. Uh, second Epistle of St. Paul to Thessalonians, chapter 2. And I read this for those who probably haven't read it in the last oh, few months or so. And we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of our gathering together unto him, that you be not easily moved from your sense, nor be terrified, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by epistle, as sent from us, as if the day of the Lord were at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for unless there come a revolt first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and is lifted up above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself as if he were God. Remember you not that when I was with yet with you, I told you these things. And now you know what withholdeth, that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity already worketh, only that he who now holdeth do hold, until he be taken out of the way. And when that wicked one shall be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus shall kill with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, him whose coming is according to the working of Satan, 
in all power and signs and lying wonders, and in all seductions of iniquity, to them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Therefore God shall send them the operation of error to believe lying, that all may be judged who have not believed the truth, but have consented to iniquity. But we ought to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of God, for that God hath chosen you firstfruits unto salvation, in sanctification of the Spirit and faith of the truth, whereunto also he hath called you by our gospel unto the purchasing of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have learned, whether by word or by our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope in grace, exhort your hearts and confirm you in every good work and word. Now, here we find in this uh, brief chapter, this is chapter 2 of the Second Epistle of St. Paul to the Thessalonians, only 16 verses. We find a reference to the man of sin, or the son of perdition, will come in the world, we know as the Antichrist. So it will be not just a uh, plurality of people or multiplicity of people. St. John talks in his epistles about uh, there are many Antichrists. But he says anyone is an Antichrist who denies that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, made man. St. Paul is speaking very uniquely of an individual a unique individual who will be so possessed by Satan. He will be perfectly possessed by Satan. And um, he will be so much so uh, that he will be actually referred to as the man of sin and the son of perdition. But um, St. Paul says that he's going to be revealed in due time, but that due time has much to do or everything to do with the restrainer. Okay, he, he refers to one who withholdeth, he says here. Um, that now you know what withholdeth, that he may be revealed in his time. And he talks about the one who withholdeth being taken away. And only one that the one who withholdeth, or the restrainer, as he is sometimes referred to, uh, will prevent him from manifesting himself, and when that restrainer is taken out of the way, then the Antichrist will manifest himself to the world. This is what our writer is referring to. Okay. Now, the question of who or what withholds the power of Satan from sending his emissary into the world, the Antichrist, is interesting. It's been uh, debated, discussed by the fathers of the church, okay, and theologians. Um, and commentators of the of the epistles and the apocalypse. In one case, the restrainer is referred to in the neuter. In another case, he is referred to as uh, masculine. Okay, so being called one, at one time neuter, that would give rise to the impression that he's a thing. All right, being called the masculine gives the impression that, that he's a, a man. Not just a human being, but a male human being. Uh, could he be both? 
The answer could be, as the writer implies here, and Cardinal Manning said, that it could refer to the papacy as a thing and the pope as a man uh, would be removed. Okay, And um, that certainly could well apply to our present day. Um, Cardinal Manning wrote very powerfully about this subject, and I'd recommend that people get a hold of his writings on the subject of the Antichrist. Um, and you'd think that he was writing about our own day, today. But I, if the writer of our, of our letter here is, is asking for a th my thoughts on the subject, for what that's worth, I would have to agree with Cardinal Manning. I think that is the most uh, reasonable and probably the most commonly accepted interpretation of the words of St. Paul. Now, there are those who say <clears throat> that um, these words refer to the Blessed Sacrament. There are commentators on this epistle who say that the restrainer, once referred to in the neuter and the other is referred to in the masculine, is actually the Blessed Sacrament. And of course, we know that the Latin for the most blessed sacrament, I mean, uh, sacramentum sanctissimum, or sanctissimum sacramentum, or even sometimes just referred to as the sanctissimum, the most sacred, the most holy, uh, is neuter, and it refers to the blessed sacrament, our Lord's presence there. <clears throat> but also that would apply uh, in terms of calling the, the restrainer by the masculine gender also, because it refers to our Lord, in the sacrament in which he is present, the sacrament which is his presence, not only as God, but as man. And so it would seem that the, uh, the reference to the restrainer being neuter and masculine could very well refer to the presence of our Lord in the most blessed sacrament as, as man, God made man. So, as I say, these are the two general ideas that one finds in commentators on this, on this passage. And we can talk about that um, and argue this from different points of view. But I wonder if it couldn't be understand, understood in both ways, in the sense that uh, uh, the papacy and the popes have been the great champions of the real presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. And... Um, if, if the Blessed Sacrament itself were removed, then one could see that very, very shortly thereafter, the papacy itself would falter, right? Or if the papacy faltered, one could see that, well, of course, then the Blessed Sacrament itself would be the target, and that that would also be taken. Right? So it's not impossible to see uh, this referring to uh, having a primary and a secondary meaning. Because the office of Peter and uh, the presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament throughout history is so closely tied together. The one sustains the other and the other, and the other protects the, the other with his life, you know, right. as the true pontiff does. Now, we have a situation here today where uh, <clears throat> we see the <clears throat> close relationship between the papacy, the Pope, the Blessed Sacrament, and our Lord's presence in the Blessed Sacrament, and how the enemies of Christ have sought 
to get at the Blessed Sacrament, to get at our Lord through the papacy. The permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita of the Masonic Lodges, uh, the Carbonari in Italy, uh, were actually targeting our Lord, but they were targeting at his him and his church by planning to seize control of the papacy by infiltration. And we see what has happened here with the introduction of modernists. As the modernists have come to power and finally seized the papacy under John the 23rd, and now how, what they have done, right? We see the consequences of this now before our very eyes. We see John the 23rd promoting his modernists, his fellow modernists in position of power so that they would elect someone who would be unthinkable as a pope before, perhaps, except maybe in the most corrupt times of the early, uh, you know, the so-called Dark Ages. But in any case, um, but Paul VI um, um, set his hand to the modernist work of destroying the Mass and the sacraments and introducing the new Mass and the new sacraments, uh, which are modernists. They're the, they're the, they are the practice of the modernist religion. Modernism is not Catholicism, as Pope Pius X said. Modernism is an anti-Catholic faith. And that's why the practice of the Catholic faith and the practice of the modernist faith, which is the Novus Ordo, the New Order, are absolutely and diametrically opposed to each other, and they cannot be reconciled. One must make the choice between them, but one can in no way reconcile them and try to practice both because they're based on two different belief systems, as they like to say these days, two different faiths. So uh, the faith and the anti-faith, the Catholic faith and the anti-Catholic faith, modernism. <coughs> so uh, we see that as soon as modernists gain power, they immediately began to attack the Mass. These all the sacraments, but they began to attack the Mass. They wanted to attack the Mass first, <coughs> but the first sacrament they actually succeeded in changing was that of the ordination of priests. That in itself, though, was a necessary step to attack the sacrifice, because the priest is the one here on earth who has been commissioned by Christ at the Last Supper to do this in commemoration of me. And so we always have to remember now, it was a kind of a contest for them <laughs> to see which they could get to first, the sacrament of holy orders or the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. Either one, they're attacking Christ. They knew this, they understood that very well. And um, so, Tom, I cannot say, of course, I mean, I'm not the authority on the subject. Uh, I could just tell you what others have said before me and whom you know, I think the church has certainly had confidence in, in their words and holds them up as doctors of, doctors of the, the church and fathers of the church, um, that they've thought that this refers to the papacy and the Pope or the Blessed Sacrament and our Lord's presence there. But there's no reason why we have to make a choice between them because they, they stand or um, fall, quote unquote, together, right? They are united in being targets of the enemies of Christ and, um, they found it necessary to attack the successor of Peter, the vicar of Christ, in order to abuse that authority, to falsify 
and authority to attack Christ, to attack his priesthood, and to attack his real presence in the Blessed Sacrament. This is what we now know as the New Order. Sure. Uh, okay, well, Father, we've got another great question here. This is uh, from a viewer who asked for your help in understanding a difficult teaching, as he titles it. And he says uh, he's read in the Catechism that, quote, we call God a spirit because he has understanding and free will, but no body. So, Father, how do we understand that? And at the same time, we know that Jesus Christ is God and man, and he has a body. How do we reconcile these two things, that God is a spirit, but yet the second person of the Blessed Trinity is God and has a body? Well, we refer to that as a mystery of faith, the Incarnation. A hypostatic union, the title that is used, right, from the Greek, uh, that God became man. Now, reconciling that in our minds um, is a different matter in the sense that we cannot reason to that conclusion and know that by mere natural knowledge because we do not understand the power of God. But we do know this, that God as the creator of all, including human nature, has absolute power over human nature. And he has the power to actually take a nature, a, in this case, a human nature, to himself and become the person of that human nature, body and soul. And that's exactly what he did through the incarnation. The union between the divine person and the nature, the human nature that he took to himself, becoming man, literally. He, he didn't become man literally in the sense that he changed himself from God into man. He didn't stop being God, right? It's not a union of his divine nature and his human nature. That is impossible, right? Um, but uh, because it would be absurd. But it is not absurd to say that God, the divine person, could take to himself a created nature and unite himself to that human nature in such a way that the person of that, body and soul, because both had to be created, body and soul, the person of that human substance, you might say, uh, complete substance, body and soul, that makes us up, right? We say man is a creature composed of body and soul. This is the meaning of it, right? We're composed of body and soul. That's why we say that even the saints in heaven, now separated from their bodies, the philosophers even now refer to them as incomplete substances until the resurrection, and we have the reunion of soul with body. Because we are complete substances only when we are united body and soul. But uh, in any case, God united himself with a human nature, but it's a nature that was created by him and designed by him in his own image <coughs> to be able to know what is true, love what is good, and rejoice in what is beautiful. And so there's nothing contrary in us that would prevent God from doing this, because we are already in his image. And um, 
there were all manner of heretics who tried to deny the reality of this union, the hypostatic union, so that they wanted to destroy the idea of the incarnation. They wanted to say, you know, God did not really become man. He didn't really take a human nature to himself, such that the, the person who speaks to me and the person who touches me, the person who sees me here before me, Jesus of Nazareth, this, they want to have you believe that, that is not really the Son of God, the eternal Son of God who is speaking to me, but it is. He is the divine person there. And that is why we can honestly say that God knows what it feels like to have spikes driven through one's hands and feet. And God knows what it feels like to be spat upon. God knows what it feels like to be blasphemed, right? God knows what it feels like. Um, he knows what it feels like, humanly speaking, because it's the divine person of God who is Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ made man, okay? The Son of God made man. So um, how we reconcile this, well, we'd only have to reconcile it if there were a contradiction, but there is no contradiction here. It falls within the power of God. Okay. Certainly not the power of man, not even the power of the angels. That's why we talked about the Antichrist a moment ago. God, the devil cannot become man. He's not the creator. He doesn't have power over these other natures. He doesn't have power to change his own nature or adopt, him, let alone adopt another nature. Uh, Satan is not the creator. He'd like us to flatter him with that lie. Uh, but... We know it's still alive, and he knows it too, ultimately. But uh, <coughs> the Antichrist will not be the devil incarnate. The devil cannot become incarnate. The devil can take possession, as we know, but he cannot become man. Um, so, in any case, um, as you know, there's much more that can be said. Volumes have been written on the subject, but I will try to limit my comments to that. <laughs> No, if our writer, our good writer here, uh, wants to take issue with what I've said or bring up some more information, maybe some readings from the fathers that he's come across, I'd very much appreciate hearing what he has to say. All right, uh, the next question, Father, is it sinful for uh, someone to take anti-anxiety medication? Does taking these pills mean that the patient is placing his trust in this medication rather than in God? Also, is it an occasion of sin to take these pills because there is a chance of addiction to them? Well, there's the possibility of addiction to them. There's, there are all kinds of side effects to these things, too. Okay, It's interesting to you know, read the labels or the, the warning information that comes out with public, these medications because you know one can take a medication to relieve headaches, and they'll say caution might cause headaches. Right. <laughs> such things. At the least. <laughs> right, at least not. Um, you know, you take antidepressants, and one of the side effects could be depression. Right. right. <laughs> On to, you know, doing oneself in, even. So sure. there are grave, grave dangers in all of the, well, many of these medications, anyway. Is it a sin to take them? Uh, if there is a real pathological condition that warrants them, if the condition of someone is so grave, if the danger is so immediate, the pain, the suffering, and so on, 
are so intense that one can be, receive relief from these things, it would not be simple to take them. Obviously, one uh, would have to ward off uh, addiction to them. But uh, is it a denial of God and his providence and his loving care? No. I mean, uh, one could say that the taking of any medication would be, in that regard, a denial of God's providence. And why do I need medication to help me uh, to do anything, right? To, well, why, why when I go under the knife and have an operation, let's say somebody goes in for rotator cuff surgery, and... Uh, and, you know, as a general anesthesia, is that a matter of rejecting God's providence? No, of course not. Now, there are those who are willing to suffer without the anesthesia. Um, and that, but that is certainly extraordinary. We recognize that as a mark of extraordinary sanctity for someone who, who is willing to do that. But at the same time, we realize that for many, many centuries, uh, there was no such thing as anesthesia, right? And uh, one would bite the bullet, as they say, while they took the arrowhead out of it or whatever by a knife. And uh, so, you know, suffering such pain is uh, not unknown in the human race history. It's actually in our own time that we have the benefit of these anesthetics. And uh, it is not sinful to take advantage of them because we see that they are the work of human ingenuity and God himself is the one who invested that in us. He created us. <clears throat> so the problem is not that we have them and use them. The problem is that we abuse them. Sure. That's when that becomes something sinful. Sure. Okay. Uh, Father, we received a request for you to comment on the celebrity culture of today and how that is harming us. Any thoughts on that? Well, since I'm talking to a celebrity, Tom, I, I hope you don't take this uh, personally. Okay. Of course. I, there are those when I travel the missions who ask about you and the families. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, no, I do not consider that to make you a celebrity. I, I think what the person is talking about is the uh, sort of the the big names, the, the, the rich and famous of the day, right, whose names are in the headlines. And uh, who are kind of the modern-day pagan gods and goddesses of Olympus. We've created kind of, well, you know, you think of Hollywood, right? And as I said, modern Mount Olympus. Now, of course, it's not Hollywood anymore, right? Um, that pretty much has decayed, I gather, in the movie industry. But there's still something about the name Hollywood that, you know, smacks of everything worldly. And uh, decadent, unfortunately. And... Uh, and so, you know, that, that is probably something that is emblematic of the celebrity so-called culture, right? Um, unfortunately, it's, it's neo-paganism. It's a resurgence of paganism. Amorality, not just immorality, amorality. There is no morality, right? Uh, you enter a world of celebrity where you are above the principles of morality and above uh, the principles, not only right and wrong, but above the principles of right and true and false. Even. Um, so that now, because one is considered a celebrity, now they have different lists. They have the A list, the B list, C list, D list celebrities. Who makes those up? Who knows? I guess they make them up for themselves. Um, and uh, because they speak, they speak like oracles to the people out there. Uh, and their word is true. Right, just because they're celebrities, of course. So if we wanted 
decide whether abortion is right or wrong, we have to go and talk to a celebrity. So we have to ask this Milano woman who, you know, we have to talk to someone like, uh, uh, you know, this Cortez, uh, because the Cortez woman, because now she is a celebrity, right? And what makes one a celebrity is, again, that they're rich or famous, mostly famous. There are a lot of rich people who aren't famous, who are not celebrities. But uh, I guess the word celebrity has to do with those who are celebrated, right? And those who are being celebrated in the modern press are those who basically, uh, 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 unfortunately, deny God, for the most part, every now and then. Um, in the modern media, as they're sometimes referred to, um, something sneaks through that um, speaks positively of God, uh, positively of some virtue, but fewer and fewer. More and more often we find that those are being squelched. You've got not only the, the print media, but you've got Facebook and you've got Twitter and you've got all of these other uh, social media, because I guess they call them now, right? And we know that they are trying to squeeze, uh, just, well, actually throttle, and uh, even unto death, any conservative traditional voices with regard to morality. And uh, they, they even consider the voices raised against abortion up till birth to be a kind of Twitter porn, I guess they've uh, decided to ban it as a, under that title, right? So um, this is what's happening to culture, the genuine culture of our Lord Jesus Christ and Christendom, the society, the culture, that belief in him and the practice of his religion, uh, the Catholic faith has brought, is now being battered down. And uh, it is being battered down by a resurgent Satanism. It all comes down to that. And uh, celebrities, the celebrities are the, as I said, the, the oracles of this Satanism and this, uh, and this paganism. And Father, I think something else that perhaps might tie in with that, uh, this idea of the celebrity culture is a modern obsession with sports and athletes. No. Um, a friend and I were just talking about this. The other day, how it seems that athletes, in a sense, have replaced devotion to saints, where now we have this devotion to athletes, where instead of uh, wearing saints' medals or, or anything like that, we'll have, uh, you know, you see everyone walking around with the jerseys of, of their favorite player, and uh, there's, uh, instead of movies or documentaries being made about saints, they're being made about sports players and uh, and, and these athletes, and it just seems that there's almost a uh, kind of worship of, of athletes now in sports yeah, in general. That's true. Well, they are celebrities too, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so um, true. All right, well, Father. Unfortunately, there are many athletes who are, uh, uh, I, I believe, have a certain love for our Lord. Sure. Uh, but um, an, an allegiance to him. Mm -hmm. Many, not all of them, of course, understand, you know, the, who he really is, because only the Catholic faith can enable us to understand that. Mm -hmm. But I hope that... Uh, they will, uh, by the grace of God, find their way into the true traditional Catholic faith, right. as I hope all of those who fall into the pit of the Novus Ordo can escape it and come back to the traditional Catholic faith and the traditional Catholic religion, too. Right. 
Father, one last thing, if we could, uh, real quickly. We received a, uh, an email from a viewer who uh, just recently watched one of Ann Barnhart's videos, and uh, he said that I found this video to be good, but I would like Father's opinion. It ties in, it ties a lot of things together. Uh, her videos have given me a clearer view of evil, and I think people need to be able to comprehend evil to fight it and also to protect oneself from it. So, Father, what are your views on Ann Barnhart and her videos? Well, I've only seen... Um perhaps a total of 10 minutes of her video offerings. I understand she's quite prolific in producing videos at hours, the, hour, the, hours length. The one, two he, or three the one he links here is three hours. Three hour video. Three hour video. Right. Put you to shame, Father Jenkins. Well, not only that, Tom, but put me to sleep. <laughs> uh, in the sense that uh, I don't have three hours to watch anything, right? even what Catholics believe. <laughs> but uh, um, I would say this, um, Anne Barnhart, uh, I, you know, in terms of credentials, I, I, there are none. Uh, but I think she herself acknowledges that. Um, I think she's, I th she's very uh, vociferously anti-Sedivacontist, uh, I believe. But everybody's fallen into that into that um, lockstep, mindless condemnation of city of Acantism without even really understanding it or making an effort to, just because they have been programmed almost by the Society of St. Pius X and some others. But I will say this, that the city of Acantists largely have given themselves a very bad name because they are so strident. And so often they fail to address the concerns of good Catholic people who are trying to find their way. And they have legitimate questions and they need legitimate answers. And it's often all they get out of a, uh, out of a city of Picantist is kind of a sneer, as though, well, you don't understand that, what's wrong with you? That's not right. So I think the city of Picantist themselves have warranted, uh, to a great extent, the uh, the abuse they take because they, I, I just don't know that I don't see them being motivated by a lot of charity at times. Uh, be very sarcastic and bitter. Right? That's not helpful. Um, but that does not justify others just using city vacantism as uh, you know, uh, calling people names. And uh, to make all kinds of out hominem attacks, uh, you know, and, and by branding them or something that they're not. And the word city of a contest has been royally, terribly abused. And I think uh, that this uh, lady is one of those who kind of falls into that pit. But I think there's another pit also, which is very dangerous here. And that is, uh, she is touting the idea of Benny, Benny Vicantism. Benny Vicontism is what it's called now by some, because she is trying to make the case that uh, Benedict XVI did not resign. Uh, there are all kinds of arguments that go into this. Um, some are insisting that, that uh, Benedict XVI resigned uh, the ministry, but not the office of the papacy. And so we have all kinds of uh, fine distinctions made here, right? 
going on three hours worth of, of, and more of talk about this and that, quotes here and quotes there, and, and uh, all of it for the sake, it seems, of insisting that Francis never really was the Pope. But, but don't fear, We're, that doesn't make one say to Vicantus because Benedict XVI is still alive and he was and still is the Pope. So this is the argument that is made. And it's very interesting. If it weren't so tragic, it would be absolutely amusing. You know, you have the two masks, comedy and tragedy. Well, unfortunately, the tragic, if things weren't so tragic, they probably would be amusing to see in the conservative Novus Ordo websites now, all the back and forth, and now they're engaging in name calling, you know? The people who've been bashing the Sede Vicantis all along, not really knowing what real Sede Vicantism is, uh, are now bashing each other mercilessly. Um, and often doing so in, in the similar terms that the Sede Vicantis have used to bash them for so long. Um, this is most unfortunate. Um, this is, again, the devil's work because uh, this is not going to get people to heaven. <coughs> but um, the idea that Benedict XVI remains a pontiff is of no help whatsoever uh, because there really is not a, a, uh, a denarius worth of difference between Francis and Benedict. Uh, that might seem outrageous to some who've had Benedict depicted to them as some great conservative, but he's not. He brought in the radical ideas of Vatican II. Um, he did not, um, perhaps, he wasn't as flamboyant as Francis and um, wasn't as reckless as Francis. Um, but nonetheless, John uh, Paul II and Benedict XVI, after him, consolidated Vatican II and firmed up the basis of Vatican II for Francis then to take it from there and to do what he's doing now. John Paul II and Benedict XVI actually brought those who had been Catholic people along in modernism to the point where Francis could now take them the next step. So it is not helpful to be arguing that uh, Benedict XVI is still a pontiff uh, with the idea that somehow, that's somehow going to rescue us from modernism and from the tragedy of the Novus Ordo. It's not. Uh, if we're holding Benedict XVI up as the gold standard of the faith, we've already lost the faith then because he said any number of things that were very, very uh, offensive to pious ears and very suspect, suspect of being against the faith. One could at least say that much. But he also established practices that were uh, not permitted by the church in the past, certainly. Uh, remember all the all the annulment, the annulment scandals that went on under John Paul II and Benedict XVI, the World Youth Days, and on and on, all that stuff, right? Francis didn't invent, invent this. He's just taking it to... Uh, not only the next level, but he's he's taking them to driving it to its ultimate conclusions, um, and this is what they're counting on him to do. He's their point man now.
to uh, fulfill the pact of the catacombs, fulfill the dreams of the uh, of the St. Gallen Mafia, and uh, transform, uh, well, at least what is in the mind, in the eyes of mankind, in the eyes of the world, the Catholic Church, but it's not. It's the modernist church, um, the anti-Catholic church, to transform that finally into the probably the flagship for the one world religion of the Antichrist. Right? I'm not the first to suggest that either. In fact, uh, one man who spoke it out on this very clearly, uh, Tedeschi, uh, was the former head of the Vatican Bank who felt that his life was endangered because of all that he knew that was going on in the corruption of the Vatican. So, um, but anyway, he's not, he's not a doctor of the, of the church either. So, uh, but it's interesting to hear other people saying these things who were, you know, at grounds, grounds zero in the corruption going on in the Vatican. So anyway, uh, Tom, I would say that, uh, the people who are flocking to this this website and and trying to learn from it uh, what they can and try to understand from what she says what's actually happening in the church, I think there is there is some value to what they get. They they understand how corrupt things have gotten under after Vatican II. Actually, the corruption was there before. Pope Pius the Tenth spoke of it back in 1907 with his encyclical against modernism. He talked about the corruption that was already there. He said the modernists were already in the in the very veins of the church, working it at work uh, to corrupt her, to attack her, to destroy her, which we know they can never do. But um, but one who listens to those videos come away think and really have the impression as this as this listener did, boy, things are really bad. Now that I see the evil at work here. But that's a very different thing from coming away saying. Now I understand the real nature of the problem spiritually. I mean, she can bring up all the dirts, as it were, you know, and show all the dirt that's there. But to actually give people the uh, an understanding, a real spiritual understanding of the issue, and a sense of the real spiritual answer, which is fidelity to Christ in all things, to offer them um, the answer in the return to the traditional Catholic faith, and um, to see uh, that all of the the Novus Ordo, going the entire Novus Ordo, through Benedict, through John Paul II, through through Paul VI, that it was conceived, it was ill conceived, it was conceived in in sin. I mean, you know what I'd say, really. It's conceived in modernism. Let's put it that way. It's conceived in modernism. It is the child of modernism, the entire Novus Ordo. And it has to be rejected. It has no authority from our Lord Jesus Christ. It has no authority from uh, God the Father in heaven. Uh, and uh, it is it is actually Satan working under the guise, disguising himself as an angel of light. And that disguise is getting thinner and thinner under Francis now, so that people are beginning to see this is not the good shepherd. That's a good point. They have to return to practicing the traditional Catholic faith. That's the only answer. Sure. Well, Father, lest we make this video three hours long, I think we can end with that. So, <laughs> thank Let's you. see if we can set a record. <laughs>
thank you for being here tonight. We got through a lot. We got through uh, okay. several, several emails. So yes, thank sir, you. Jennifer. Thank you for that. Sir, God yeah. bless you all. God bless all of our listeners too. Yeah. Thank you to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.